Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 13th, 2017. On today's show, we'll be diving into a little bit of Star Wars Episode Nine news. We have a new release date, as predicted on our previous podcast, and uh, in our feature presentation, since everybody in the world has seen it this weekend, uh, we're going to be diving in and geeking out over the future of that franchise, It Chapter 2. What do we know? You know, who could be involved in it we'll be geeking out and talking all about it chapter two but before we get into that we're going to get into the news with me on today's podcast is slash film managing editor jacob hall hello hello slash film weekend editor brad omen hey hey it's last film writer ben pearson hey what's up okay guys earlier today we got together for our emergency podcast because jj abrams was announced as the director of Star Wars Episode Nine, replacing Colin Trevorrow. Um, at the time, on the podcast, I speculated that the release date would be moved to May, from May to December. That has come out to be true. Brad, what do we know about it? Uh, well, so the huge news earlier today came that we have a, a new director, which we had a whole emergency podcast for. And I actually wondered to myself when J.J. Abrams was hired, since he doesn't like to rush his movies and he famously ensured that the force awakens would be released in december of 2015 instead of may of 2015 like kathleen kennedy and lucasfilm were hoping to do if they would in fact end up pushing back star wars episode 9 and from from the may 2019 release date and a few hours later that's exactly what they did and an official announcement came through starwars.com and the star wars twitter feed that Star Wars Episode Nine had indeed been pushed back to December twentieth, twenty nineteen. So we're going to get keep getting Star Wars movies in winter, uh, with the exception for now anyway of the Han Solo movie, which is still slated for a May twenty eighteen release. We'll see so, about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree. I think I think they might end up pushing that one too. And honestly, I feel like at this point now, Star Wars should just stay in December. They don't have to deal with the rigmarole of being stuffed in the middle of a crowded blockbuster summer. Of course, Star Wars is always going to do well, but I think it just stands out better and it feels like more of an event when it comes out around uh, Christmas. 
And we know from the press release that a new script is being written from J.J. Abrams and Chris Terrio, the writer of Argo. So th- this comes as no surprise because they need time to write it. And if they if they were going to try to meet that May date, they would have had to start shooting this year sometime. So uh, they don't want to rush it. Disney wants to do Star Wars right. So it just makes sense. But uh, if you're interested in this kind of discussion, I would say head on over to our, mer- our emergency podcast where we talk about this in depth depth we talk about this one line news story in about 30 minutes of discussion of nerdy <laughs> discussion and by the way i want to say guys because i see i see a lot of people you know responding about the emergency podcast a lot of people love the title uh some people are like you don't know what an emergency is and that's the whole point is we're, we're joking it's not you know the, the fact that we consider this an emergency is is all in fun it's all in jest um but yes, let's move on from Star Wars to it. Um, should we give a spoiler warning for this? How how should we proceed? Let's definitely give a spoiler warning because even though the book is over thirty years old and people have seen the miniseries, maybe there's people who haven't seen the movie yet and just kind of want to go in fresh. Because most stuff we'll be talking about today will be about the new movie and about the, the very edges of the sequel that's being made. So if you haven't seen it yet, let's give a spoiler warning right now. So if someone has seen it, should they proceed, Jacob? That's the question I have. Oh, this is actually a really tricky question. I would say yes. I would, in my personal definition of spoiler, nothing we say today will ruin your experience of a potential It sequel. Yeah, I, everything I, I, you, we, I would yeah. think everything we're talking about is going to be in the marketing of the yeah, film. I, I agree. Or the, the big spoiler, which will double warning when we get to it, is something that has not occurred yet in the, the – movies and is a huge deal but it is literally within the first 50 pages of the book and will probably be the second scene of the movie but we'll give you a second warning for that one okay so let's jump into this uh we have this article on slashfilm.com called everything we know about the it sequel so where where do we start uh do we what do we know about what they're going to do translating the novel into this second part because the novel was this long novel and it took place with uh, two different time periods. That's correct, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the original book takes place between the 1950s and the 1980s. And as you've seen the movie, you know that the movie is set in the 80s with the sequel set in modern day. And as suggested by the by the movie, there's a 27-year gap where it, a.k.a. Pennywise, a.k.a. whatever it is, vanishes, goes into hibernation, and then returns. And the blood oath that the kids made at the end of the first movie comes into play when it returns. And Mike Hanlon, who the only uh, member of the Losers Club to remain in Derry, has given everybody a phone call saying, hey, remember 30 years ago? It's time to come back. And that's the basic setup. And it's going to be an interesting adaptation because the book, and to a lesser extent, the miniseries, intercut between the timelines. Uh, the book literally has both climaxes occur at the same time where it's intercutting between the kids fighting it and the adults fighting it almost by a page by page basis at some points. And everything kind of gets blended together in a really interesting way. Whereas the movie cho- the movies are choosing to delineate them. Here's all the kids story. And here's all the adult story. So we asked uh, Andy Muschietti, the director about this on the set last year about how he would adapt the sequel. This is before the movie was a huge hit and before sequels guaranteed. He said that the movies would have a conversation with each other. He said that the, the sequel will echo the original in certain ways. And he said that he always liked how 
there was parallel action in the book of how something that happened to the, the character as a kid would be reflected a couple pages later to them as an adult in ways that were both frightening or profound. So uh, I'm intrigued by the use of the word conversation here, as, as in both movies will exist not just as a sequel to original movie, but to an echo, something that's going to reflect and comment on what we saw before. And I think that should bring us uh, to Ben, who actually knows how this a little bit more than me about how this movie's being written right now. Yeah, so when I was at the press junket, uh, the producers of the movie, Seth Graham Smith and uh, David Katzenberg, uh, well, two of the producers, Barbara Muschietti is the other one. She's the sister of Andy, the director. Uh, but Seth and David said they were talking about what they're going to do for a sequel, which at that time, and even as we record this right now, is still not officially greenlit, but based on how well the movie has performed and its opening weekend, it's almost guaranteed. So uh, they told me, um, we'll tell you when we know about a sequel. We're locked and loaded and ready to jump in the minute they say go. The script is not done, but the script is being worked on. Obviously, all the filmmakers are chomping at the bit to get started, and we have a very exciting shape, and uh, co-writer Der- Gary Doberman is working away on it. I feel somewhat optimistic that we'll get to make it, but there's been no official decision. So um, when we asked Doberman about this, he sort of played coy about whether or not he was actually working on it, but he is definitely working on it. Uh, and an official announcement came out um, through Variety a couple days ago that said he's definitely been hired. He was just sort of, uh, you know, taking it easy and trying not to uh, give away too much in order to protect, protect his job, which I don't really blame the guy for. Um, he has was uh, in an interview that we have on the site um that you can find, oh, we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Fred Topel interviewed Gary Doberman and asked him, you know, if he had started thinking about what he was going to do for It Chapter 2 yet. And he said, of course, when you're writing the script, it's hard not to think about that. You want to think about the ways the characters are going to go and all that stuff just to make it feel like they're going to be a story beyond this movie. But that's as far as I've taken it. So he's still sort of early days on the sequel. It sounds like they have a decent amount of work that, you know, maybe a treatment, maybe a, a outline, uh, an approach, but uh, it's, he definitely still has some more work to do on that. Now, and then of course, do, oh, do, I was just also, also going to say that um, Muschietti is definitely coming back to direct this movie. Um, so that's a, that's a big deal. And obviously good news for anybody who saw and liked the first movie. Do we know anybody else coming back or are the kids definitely locked in? Uh, we do know that um, Bill Skarsgård is coming back to play Pennywise again, um, so that's good news. The kids, I I think, Jacob, you were in one of your set uh, visit pieces, you were saying that um, Muschietti was talking to you guys about how he w- wanted to get this production rolling quickly so he can get the kids back in order to film some extra scenes in order to facilitate that quote-unquote conversation that he was talking about that these these two movies are supposed to have with each other, right? Yeah, at the risk of sounding really petty, <laughs> Entertainment Weekly ran an article yesterday, or I guess by the time I listened to this day before yesterday, confirming certain details about the It sequel, but they were all more or less things we learned on the set. But back then they were wishful thinking of, oh, we would like to do this, and now post $123 million opening weekend, it's like, well, yeah, we're definitely doing this. <laughs> and, e- and EW confirmed that, yes, all the kids are coming back, even though the movie will follow the adult side, the kids will be back for flashback scenes. And may- maybe I kind, of, I kind of picture scenes where maybe an adult character drives by a familiar area. We flash back into a scene of the kids hanging out, maybe to inform what's going on. And there mm. are a, there's a lot of kid scenes that were not in the movie that were in the book that I can see them maybe shooting and fleshing out just to add texture to the adult stuff because 
between you and me, dear listeners, the adult half doesn't have as much interesting stuff. So they actually got to probably have to invent more stuff to um, bring this to life. So Indeed. the kids will be back, and 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 I imagine we'll be hearing more about this very soon, because both Barbara Muschietti and Andy Muschietti both expressed on the set that yeah, we want to make the sequel, we want it to happen as soon as possible. The kids are getting older, and it'll be they'll be visibly older soon if you don't act fast. So I imagine we'll be hearing more soon. And speaking of flashbacks, this is something I want Ben to chime in too, is that they teased a lot more dairy flashbacks uh, on the set visit. And throughout the movie, we see a lot of references, photographs of past tragedies that occurred in Derry, Maine, Stephen King's evil town, where lots of the children die, lots of people died. And we hear references to a fire at the Black Spot, for example, a, a uh, Blacks-only nightclub that was burned down by white supremacists. And on the set visit, they told us that scene was in the screenplay, and they cut it out uh, for time and pace issues, but they said it may actually open the sequel. So... The suggestion being that sequel, in addition to having flashbacks to the kids, will feature flashbacks to all these horrible events where we're going to see throughout the centuries and decades how Pennywise or It has been tormenting the people in this area. And if you go to Slash Film, we, today we wrote up a series of videos that dissect the screenplay for the Carrie Fukunaga version of this movie that was going to be made a few yeah, years ago. Yeah, we should say, so what, what was, that was the previous iteration of this before yeah. Andy came on board, right? Yeah. Um, the pre- previous version was written by Chase Palmer and Kerry Fukunaga. Uh, featured a lot of flashbacks. Features a uh, flashback to the black spot being burnt down. Features a flashback to a saloon where Pennywise incites violence. And the best scene, from what I can tell from that was described to me, was a scene set in colonial days where a mother walks in on an early form of it before it's found its Pennywise guys devouring her child. And essentially telling her, if you go away now, I will not harm you. I only want your child and want fear, which sounds like a really creepy, great scene. And since Gary Dauberman kept a number of the other scenes that were in the Fukunaga and Palmer drafts, I'm curious if we'll start seeing more of the flashbacks that were littered throughout the Fukunaga stuff maybe make their way into the sequel. What do you think about this, Ben? Yeah, that's a big part of the book is the the way that um, the city, the town of Derry is sort of infected by the presence of Pennywise. And the, the movie, uh, It Chapter One, did a good job of sort of hinting at this. Um, and that's something that I know that um, that Muschietti wants to make a lot more explicit in the sequel. Um, so, yeah, flashbacks, all that stuff. I'm, I'm excited to see sort of how he envisions um, what that is going to look like. And I think that that's a good transition point into uh, my last point in this section, which is things in the in the new movie, it's chapter two, are going to get really, really weird. Um, there in the book, there's this whole concept of another dimension where Pennywise slash it sort of originated from and uh, and, and sort of operates in his full essence. Um, we've gotten just the slightest hint of that when uh, Pennywise opens his mouth in It Chapter One and you see these crazy lights. Um, he closes his mouth over Stan's face in the movie at one point and Stan is sort of uh, traumatized by seeing what in the book are referred to as the dead lights, which is sort of this this pure form of It in its, in its form that it can't even take a, a, uh, a physical manis- manifestation that, hum- that the human mind can even comprehend. So it's this really interesting uh, aspect of that character, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do in the second movie with that. But uh, one of the ways that that the sequel is going to be even weirder than what we saw in the first movie 
is that uh, it's going to get sort of trans-dimensional. Um, Muschietti said that he wanted to focus on the emotional journey of the group of the kids in the first film, uh, but, quote, getting into that other dimension, the other side, was something that we could introduce in the second part. In the book, the perspective of the writing is always with the losers, so everything they know about Pennywise is very speculative and shrouded in absurdity, so I wanted to respect that mystery feeling of not knowing what's on the other side. I think that worked really, really well in the first movie, but yeah, having the opportunity to sort of fill in some of that um, backstory, but not in like a didactic, stupid way <laughs> in, the, in the second film um, should be uh, go a long way to sort of adding to the mythos of this whole thing. Um, one last thing was that uh, the character of Mike Hanlon, who um, was played by Chosen Jacobs in the first movie, uh, he is going to basically, he's the only character of the Losers Club that stays in Derry as the kids grow older into adulthood. All of the rest of them sort of go off in their own separate ways. But Mike stays behind and becomes the town librarian in the book. And he sort of is like the uh, historian and, and learns all about um, the history of it, almost like the way that Ben Hanscom did in this first movie. Um, but Muschietti has a very different idea of what to do with Mike in the second movie. Uh, I wrote about this, so you can write, you can read about it at SlashFilm.com. But he said, my idea of, of Mike in the second movie is quite darker from the book. I want to make his character the one pivotal character who brings them all together. But staying in Derry took a toll with him. I want him to be a junkie, actually, a library junkie. Where the second movie starts, he's a wreck. Um, and the reason that he wants to have Mike be a junkie is because he, the character is going to use these drug trips to uh, discover the true origin of it. And I'm not really going to get into what that is. You can read all about it in, the, in my article. I've like quoted from uh, King's work, and, and you can see exactly how that's going to all factor in. But, uh, but yeah, this all sounds super fascinating to oh, me. Okay, I have a question for you guys, because when they first embarked on this it was kind of presented like this is going to be a two-part movie first part with the kids and second part with them as adults but now it seems uh like we're going to see some flashbacks of them as a kid in the second part it doesn't seem like it's going to be fully them as adults and you know the end of this film basically retitles the movie it chapter one uh, chapter sounds weirder than, uh, you know, part one or, you know, the first part or, or, or whatnot, like you've usually used in those kind of, uh, sequel settings. Is it possible that this could, I mean, it made so much money. Is it possible that Warner Brothers could get greedy and chapter two is not the, you know, the concluding chapter of this franchise that it, it could go on into future movies? Possibly. Yes. It's a terrible idea. It has a very definitive ending. Which is, I hope it's not, it's not a spoiler. The book ends, as, as all 1,200-page books should, it ends very with a very satisfying and very final conclusion. Yeah. Uh, it, makes, it makes you feel like you've not wasted your time. So while they could make an It Chapter 3 if they had the nerve, that's such a bad idea. And I think that... Well, the, they, the, they, the, could, they could make a prequel. They could show some of the stuff in, in Derry, the earlier the, stuff, right? I think I, possibly, but I think the wiser move would be to lean into connected universes, man. I mean, everybody everybody wants to connect to the universe, but here's a Stephen King universe. Uh, did you know that Pennywise has a cameo appearance in the Dark Tower books? He does. <laughs> um, all, why not make a, a new Salem's Lot movie? Because characters in Salem's Lot pop up in other Stephen King books. Um, kids from it make a, an appearance in eleven twenty eight sixty three, which was adapted for Hulu. All the as the new Castle Rock series that they're making for Hulu, which combines Stephen King universe into one show, suggests 
Um, there's an opportunity here to say, let's not milk it. Let's take the Stephen King universe and branch off of that. Let's take this similar tone, attention to character and detail, horror that makes you care about the victims, and apply that to other Stephen King adaptations. And like the, how the Conjuring movies are all tied together, make Stephen King movies that are tied together and have characters wander from one movie to another and say, this is one big world and it's all connected and give you the same satisfying feeling without milking one book. I think that's the ideal way to go about franchising this property. Uh, I'm not entirely certain that that's what they're going to do because as you already pointed out, Jacob, the the adult side of it um, is a little lacking. Um, so they are going to have some work to do. I can't imagine that they would... Um, stretch that already sort of uh, lesser, quote unquote, lesser uh, part of the book into a whole nother movie. But I, I would not be surprised to see them do a prequel um, just to sort of keep the audience's uh, attention on one particular aspect of the franchise instead of requiring people to realize that, you know, just a couple characters are making appearances in another property kind of thing. Um, it, it sounds good. I just don't trust Warner Brothers to have the confidence to be able to pull it off, especially when the Dark Tower movie, which is not a Warner Brothers movie, it's a Sony movie, but that movie just performed so poorly earlier. So I, I, I'm not sure what what the future of it is. But yeah, Peter, I would not be surprised to see a prequel at some point. Okay. Remind me, does, does Warner Brothers have the stand? Um, I think so. I think Josh Boone was working on it at one point. Because um, they need to greenlight that ASAP because people are clearly hungry for good Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, another article we have on SlashFilm.com is our casting choices for the adult versions of the characters you saw in It Chapter 1. Uh, as you know, obviously the kids can't play their future selves in uh, It Chapter 2. Uh, so they're going to have to recast those roles um, for their adult versions. Uh, so we got together, or you guys got together, and did some fantasy casting of who you'd like to see play these characters uh, in the movie. So l- let's start with, uh, I guess, Richie and uh, Jacob. Yeah, I guess to be perfectly clear, the one rule we had making these lists was that it had to be a realistic choice. Even even though it too will have a bigger budget than it one, we're not gonna go cast Tom Cruise and Will Smith. We're gonna cast actors who could, be, who could realistically be cast in an it chapter two, and, and that would fit that. Like you guys have read the book, so except for Brad, actually Ben Ben and Jacob have read <laughs> the book. Uh, so you are picking choices that would be fitting of the adult characters because, as you know, you don't always turn into the you you turn into a different person as an adult than you are as a kid so some of these kids are, are very different in their adult right. personas yeah uh so i'm gonna start with richie as you said peter uh you may remember richie played with finn wolfhard the loudmouth class ca- clown gets a lot of the scene stealing moments and when we meet him 27 years later in the book he's a popular shock jock radio dj who's known for doing crazy voices and wild antics and the miniseries changed into be a stand-up comedian which I think actually may be a better choice for the movie as well. But we'll see. But in either case, like this, the, the, the annoying kid with all these dumb voices, he's always wisecracking, ends up growing up into a successful comedy act. So I'm thinking, who looks like an older Finn Wolfhard, but also can capture the idea of somebody who, who uses his voice and impersonations for a living? And I'm thinking Bill Hader, who won the funniest man alive, and an incredible impersonator, SNL veteran. Just a guy who can morph into so many different characters and so many different voices and personas. And he can capture that same manic energy, I think, that Finn Wolfhard brought to Richie. But at the same time, 
I think there's such a good restrained actor under that, somebody who can deliver drama and heartbreak and, and break into the side of Richie, who's the guy who can't keep a wife and can't keep his life together, even though he's a really funny person. I think Bill Hader is, he's been my top choice for years. It's long before this movie was even made and he's still my number one choice. Nice. Um, so for me, I will talk a little bit about Bill Denbro, who's the character played by uh, Jaden Lieberher in the movie. He's sort of the leader of the Losers Club. His little brother Georgie is the one who's murdered in uh, the opening minutes of the movie. Um, so the adult version of Bill becomes a, a successful horror writer, and he ends up adapting one of his own books into a screenplay for a Hollywood movie. So that's where we sort of catch up with him as the uh, the adult portion of the book begins. Um, I'm choosing Mark Duplass to play uh, Bill, and I think that he is one of those guys that works really well as the traditional straight man. A lot of these other characters in the Losers Clubs have sort of outsized personalities, but Bill can sometimes be a little difficult to read. Um, he is just very much a regular kind of guy. Um, and I think that uh, Duplass has a good ability to sort of uh, play a regular guy, but also take things to the next level when it's required of him. I think he has this sort of steely determination that that an adult Bill needs when he realizes that he has to finally avenge the death of his younger brother. And, uh, and yeah, like a level-headedness and sort of um, like a, a general uh, charisma without it not being too overbearing. So I think he would be a, a very good Bill. I have the honor of talking about Mike Hanlon, who uh, was dealt some crushing blows by the bullies in Derry, got beat up a few times. Also, his family was burnt alive in a terrible fire that uh, doesn't really sound like it was an accident. And so as we uh, Ben and Jacob talked about before, Mike has taken a bit of a darker path since he's the only one who stays behind in Derry while the rest of the Losers Club has moved away. And he becomes this, uh, what Andy Machete described as a uh, librarian junkie, where not only is he dedicated to trying to figure out how to kill it and what it has done to Derry and its uh, residents over this long period of time that's been terrorizing it, but he's also been experimenting with mind-altering drugs as a way of uh, continuing to figure out how to kill it and de uh, deal with fear and maybe you know trick it, all, all that kind of thing. Uh, so my pick is is seems a little bit unconventional, but I think that he can fit it pretty well, and that's Jordan Peele, one half of the comedic duo Key and Peele, and the director of this year's uh, fantastic acclaimed horror thriller Get Out. Uh, Peele is certainly known on the acting side for doing comedy, but if any, anybody who's watched Key and Peele knows that he has an impressive range. He's played a wide variety of characters, and while they're they're mostly all played for laughs, I think it shows that he really can become a comedian actor and fit inside any character that he's given. And when you're dealing with a character like Mike, who will probably be on edge, kind of wiry, losing his mind a little bit because of the drugs that he's on and because he's been so ingrained in you know, learning about it, I think Peel can really bring a sort of eccentricity and uh, wild-eyed performance to the character that isn't funny, but is intense and believable. And I mean, uh, comedy and horror are very close to each other and how they get reactions from people, involuntary reactions. And so I think bringing somebody like Peel in to take on a, a role like this would be a really interesting move uh, for the It sequel. Yeah. 
Next, uh, we're talking about Ben Hanscom, played by Jeremy Ray Taylor in the first movie, the chubby, lonely, curious, fun, quiet kid, who I think a lot of film nerds probably related to in a big way. And in the book, Ben grows up, starts running, starts getting in shape, and turns into this lauded architect uh, who's very good-looking and very in shape. So I was thinking, what kind of actor is somebody who we would... It not only would the other losers be surprised to see that Ben became this guy, but who would an audience be surprised to see as Ben? I was thinking Ethan Embry, who you remember as a, as a young actor from Empire Records or Vegas Vacation, who has now grown into being this really lean, very handsome uh, genre star. He's in movies like Cheap Thrills and Devil's Candy. He's really embraced being a horror guy now. So in addition to having the double effect of oh my god, that's that guy I remember as a little kid, and now he's grown up to be this handsome, in-shape, like, moody actor. I, I think that it will have that effect on the audience and have that effect on the characters in the movie. And I know that Brad had a very similar choice for Ben, uh, and I'm going to let him share it right now, because uh, it's kind of, a, the kind of like their spiritual sequels in terms of picks. Yeah, this, this is what I thought of, because it, it creates sort of a, a meta bond between a previous Stephen King work uh, because that's because I thought it would be rather cool to see Jerry O'Connell step up and play Ben. Um, Jerry O'Connell played uh, the chubbier kid. Unfortunately, I can't remember the character's name. Do you guys remember his name? I don't. Not off the top of my head. Yeah. Anyway, he he played the the chubby kid in Stand by Me, which is famous for having a young group of kids who had this incredible chemistry, just like the Losers Club did. And Jerry O'Connell grew up to be a handsome dude, very fit in in shape, and he's not quite. Uh, the the stud that he was uh, a decade or so ago, he's definitely aged a little bit, but he still you know looks good, and I, I feel like seeing him in that role would just be an interesting nod to Stephen King's uh, work before, and I think he that he can do a good job by maybe surprising people and turning in a good performance, and you know we can't forget that he already has horror f- sequel experience since he played uh, Sidney Prescott's boyfriend in Scream Two. Uh, that character's in, uh, go ahead. And I was going to say both of those choices are from can't hardly wait so yeah. <laughs> uh, i was just gonna say that the uh, character's name is Vern in stand by me so there you go sheath your uh, your angry emails um so i want to talk a little bit about bev uh beverly and she is uh an actress that i think uh really fits this part well and that's gonna be bryce Dallas bryce dallas howard that's my pick for the character um i know a lot of people including our own jacob hall are sort of uh pinpointing uh jessica chastain as like the clear choice since she's worked with andy muschietti before on mama but i think the character of bev since in the um the adult portion of the book she is uh, basically trapped in an abusive relationship with a character that reminds her very much of her own father who was a super creep in the first movie you'll probably remember him uh because bev is sort of like a pushover in the adult portions of the book i think she needs to be a character who's not quite as strong as chastain often appears to be on screen and i think bryce Dallas howard has that vulnerability that uh that would work really well as this character and and she also has the ability to sort of turn it up a little bit and and you know actually uh, traverse a worthwhile, interesting arc from um, a pure pushover into somebody who reclaims her life back um, by the end of the movie. So uh, so yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard would be my choice. Uh, the next role that we casted was that of Eddie, who is was the fast talking, uh, neurotic, 
hypochondriac character from the Losers Club, always worried about getting sick, had his inhaler around, uh, never really wanted to get hurt into any trouble. And a lot of that came from his overprotective mother, who was also kind of creepy, wearing um, a strange fat suit for some reason that didn't really work makeup-wise on her. <laughs> um, but anyway, my, go, kind of going along with uh, the similar casting choice that I made for Ben, I thought it would be interesting to bring a former child star into the fray to play uh, this adult character, and that's Fred Savage from The Wonder Years. Uh, more recently, uh, he has been behind the camera directing episodes of big comedy series like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and shows like that. He had a role on The Grinder, the short-lived series on Fox for a while, and you can also see him on Netflix's Friends uh, from College. But otherwise, he hasn't really done much in the vein of movies. And if you look at some pictures of the um, the actor who played young Eddie in the It Chapter 1 and Fred Savage when he was younger, they look like they could be brothers and i just think that fred savage has this presence that he can really bring out the that neurotic side of eddie as an adult since he doesn't really get better about you know his uh medical woes and concerns and things like that and it's i think it would be a very interesting role for fred savage to dig into at this stage in his career all right before we dive into our last casting here this is where i'm going to offer another minor spoiler warning if you've seen the miniseries you'll be fine if you've read the first 50 pages of It, you'll be fine. If you don't mind what's going to be one of the very first scenes of the sequel being spoiled, you'll be fine. But if you want to go completely blind, I'd say fast forward a little bit or just turn the podcast off. This is your last warning. And also, I'll go ahead and this say... This is the last thing that we're going to go through on this It podcast, so you yeah. could just shut it off, I think. I don't think you yeah. have to fast forward. Yeah, go and shut off and go to Slashroom.com and read the full list, because in addition to names you listed here... Each of us have picked an actor for each character, so you have a full 21 names to read through and yell at us about or agree with, however you choose. <laughs> hey, so yeah, that's your last spoiler warning. Um, we're going to talk about Stan Uris. And as readers of the, or miniseries watchers know, Stan gets a phone call from Mike Hanlon, goes upstairs to his bathroom, and cuts his wrists. And he, he, it's his, He's too traumatized to even think about returning, and he's defeated by what happened 30 years ago. It's even hinted in the movie twice. Once when he's abandoned in the sewers and faces Pennywise alone. And then at the very end, when all the losers leave each other in the, uh, at the end, he's the first person to walk away. So they're, they're definitely setting it up. So I was wondering, what if they did some kind of stunt casting for Stan? It's almost like a, a Scream-esque twist. You bring in Drew Barrymore and kill her in the first scene. And I was originally just brainstorming Jewish actors just off the top of my head, I thought, what if Seth Rogen was Stan? This guy we all like. It's a very, very contagious laugh. We, who we, we see him and we smile. And the first thing he does in the movie is go kill himself. I think that would set a really harrowing and terrifying tone. And definitely make it clear that nobody in, in this movie is safe. And at the same time, they could just cast you know, another lesser-known actor. But I think if you're going to cast one recognizable face, like one marquee face in it, give the Stan for that shock value. And it definitely wouldn't take that much time out of his schedule to to do that as well. So as for what is going to happen in It Chapter 2, we're going to have to wait to find out. The script is currently being written. Uh, Once that is uh, nailed down, I'm sure we'll start to get casting announcements, which we will report on SlashFilm.com and on SlashFilm Daily. Uh, You can find more of 
all our work at SlashFilm.com and the articles we mentioned here today on SlashFilm.com. You can find Jacob Hall at Jacob S. Hall on Twitter, Ben Pearson at Ben Pears on Twitter. You can find Brad Oman at Ethan underscore Anderton on Twitter and Go Flicks Yourself podcast. You can find me at SlashFilm on Twitter. Uh, this show is published every weekday on SlashFilm.com. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Just search Slash Film Daily. Uh, subscribe. Rate us. Give us a review on iTunes. That helps us out. Spread the word. It helps us out. Uh, if you have questions for the mailbag, send them to peter at SlashFilm.com. That's peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location so in case we mention it on the air. And sincerely, thank you for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.